Hey, this is Ed Robertson, and this is the Mountain and Prairie Podcast, where I introduce you to some of the innovative and creative individuals who are helping to shape the future of the American West. My guests include ranchers, writers, entrepreneurs, conservationists, athletes, artists, pretty much anyone who's doing important work that makes the West such a special place to live, work, and play. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen to the podcast and to all of you who've shared it with your friends and family. If you haven't already, please take 30 seconds to send it out on your social networks or to email it to a friend. As I've said before, a recommendation from a close friend is always the best endorsement, so I'd really appreciate your continuing to help spread the word. I'm really, really excited about my guest today. His name is Jim Howell, and he fits into almost all the categories I mentioned just a moment ago. He's a rancher, a writer, a conservationist, an entrepreneur, and an athlete. He's also an experienced world traveler and an expert in ecology and natural history. Jim is the CEO of Grasslands LLC, which is the land management arm of the Savory Institute, an organization that Jim co-founded. Both Grasslands and Savory are focused on conserving and restoring the world's grasslands through what they call holistic management. In our conversation, we dig into all the details of holistic management, but the basic idea is that grasses of the world evolved to be grazed, and they need to be grazed to be healthy and resilient. Jim and his team used livestock to mimic the natural grazing patterns from hundreds of thousands of years ago, long before the world's grasslands were covered with people, fences, houses, and cities. Savory and grasslands results speak for themselves. After just a few years of holistic management, their ranches are healthier, have more biodiversity, are more productive, and more financially successful. Even if you have absolutely no interest in grazing or ranches or cows, you still need to listen to this interview. The work Jim is doing has a positive effect on land, people, animals, and communities all around the world, and I think anyone who loves the outdoors and is conservation-minded needs to understand Jim's work. I have no doubt that you'll gain a new appreciation for the role that livestock needs to play in conserving grasslands around the world. Even if you're a vegan living in New York City, you'll gain some valuable insights from Jim's point of view. Several years ago, I read Jim's book, For the Love of Land, and it completely shifted my perspective on the importance of grazing for conservation, the environment, communities, and local economies. I highly recommend it to anyone with an interest in the West or in land conservation in general. I've got a link to it in the episode notes on the webpage. I prepared two pages of questions for Jim, and we only scratched the surface, but we still managed to talk about a lot. We talk about the details of his work at Grasslands and Savory, as well as some of the specific methods that they use to restore grasslands around the world. We dug into the details of natural history and ecology and talk about how grasses and animals evolved together over millions of years. We talk about some of Jim's travels around Africa, South America, New Zealand, as well as his non-traditional path into the ranching business. Jim is also an ultra runner, and he's run some of the more challenging 50-mile races in Colorado, so we talk a lot about that. As usual, we talk about favorite books, documentaries, locations in the West, and a ton of other interesting information. I thought it was a fun and in-depth conversation, and I really appreciate Jim taking the time to chat. No joke, I could have asked him questions for eight more hours straight. Jim's work has been enormously influential on my career in ranch brokerage and in land conservation, and he's got a very important perspective on a subject that needs to be understood by more people. So I hope you enjoy the interview. Thanks again for listening. And here's Jim Howell. All right. So I guess the first question I'd ask, so the first question I've been asking people is when you meet somebody for the first time and they ask you what you do for a living, what do you tell them? 
Well, I say I'm a rancher, which is where I, I still identify with. And at the end of the day, even though I'm not a family day-to-day family rancher anymore, well, I lead a ranch management company. So I guess I say I'm the, I'm the leader of a ranch management company now. That's my main gig at the moment. And so what ranch management company? It's called Grasslands LLC. Um, we, uh, we're kind of an offshoot of the Savory Institute that we'll probably talk about here in a, bit, in a mm-hmm. minute, but it's, uh, it's a, a group that was founded by Alan Savory and various other friends of ours, um, including my wife and I. And um, uh, Grasslands is an entity that um, was conceived to go out and raise investor capital um, from investors that are interested in investing in um, large-scale ranches. Um, so we go out and find the ranches. We, we kind of put the deals together in, in conjunction with the real estate teams and, um, and then facilitate getting them over the line, getting them closed, and then we engage in long-term management contracts on the ranches that we get bought. Um, uh, so we contract with the entity that ends up buying the ranches. And um, our investors are mostly high net worth individuals that are interested in a long-term store of capital, um, as well as they're all interested in actually making money off the ranches as well. They're not just recreational ranches that, that, that lose money. They're actual ranches that are good commercial productive ranches that can generate a competitive annual dividend also. So what do you guys do that's different from uh, your, your average run-of-the-mill ranch management company? Well, um, there aren't too many ranch management companies out there that I'm aware of. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, a, there's a handful. Most of them actually are kind of geared around the stuff that, that we do, which is all based on the work of Alan Sabri, who is this uh, Zimbabwean guy, actually Rhodesian when he lived there, back when Zimbabwe used to be Rhodesia, who came up with um, some, some key insights that really facilitate more efficient and ecologically sound management of large-scale ranches. Um, and that more efficient ecological management translates into economic um, improvement as well. And, um, and so he, he's called holistic management because it tries to tie in um, cultural and social considerations along with economic considerations, along with ecological considerations, and trying to make decisions that are simultaneously sound from all three of those angles. Um, so there's a lot involved with it, and it's kind of nuanced, and it's complex, and it takes a long time to figure out and learn. But uh, if you stick to it, it definitely gives you a leg up um, and, and you know, yields a significant advantage um, primary, you know, in, in all realms. But the main, the main way is, is uh, economically because we can end up effectively doubling our stocking rates kind of on average, uh, taking into account tough years and and the good years, kind of average through time, we tend to be able to double our stocking rates. In other words, the number of cattle that we can run on the same land base relative to more conventional management. And there's a lot that goes into that that we might talk about here. But um, but at the end of the day, that's what our company is founded on, is this holistic management approach to, to land management. Yeah. And so you could obviously, all those points you hit, there have been dozens and dozens of books written on each point. So we were just saying this mm-hmm. <laughs> kind of comical to try to discuss all this in an hour. But yeah. wh- what I want to do is get kind of give a good overview so that people who aren't familiar with any of this mm-hmm. can, you know, get a, a decent understanding of, of kind of why this, why what you guys are doing is so important. So I think maybe the first overview um, just from an ecological standpoint is, could you talk a little bit about why grasslands are important? Cause I think, mm-hmm. You know, you go anywhere in the U.S. and most people, educated people, would know that 
the jungles are, are important and the oceans are important. But I think even people living here in the West don't have an appreciation for why um, the grasslands are so important. So can you just talk a little bit about that? Mm-hmm. Um, so the grasslands in aggregate globally comprise about 40% of the lands of the, of the, glo- of the earth's surface area, land surface area. So it's about, it's about 5 billion hectares or 12 million, sorry, 12 billion acres. Um, so it's a massive chunk of the world. <clears throat> and that, that doesn't include the, the big deserts of the world, like Sahara and the Namib and the heart of the Gobi. Those aren't included in the grasslands. So savory would include those in kind of manageable grasslands and that they've been desertified by human management. But if you even take those deserts out, there's still 12 billion acres of grasslands around the world. And, and those support about 2 billion people. Mm-hmm. And, um, and the grasslands themselves are the most under conserved kind of biome globally. Um, a lot of the best grasslands have been converted into monoculture cropping. Like the Midwest um, t- former tall grass prairie belt in the United States is almost 100% corn and soybeans now. Mm-hmm. It's almost no tall grass prairie left. Um, <clears throat> same thing in like the pampas of Argentina. It's mostly been converted to corn and soybeans. Um, so the productive grasslands of the world have almost gone. And then the kind of the marginal grasslands, much of them have been converted into wheat. Um, and then the kind of the, 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 the marginal, marginal grasslands in the semi-arid and arid areas, um, kind of the stuff that we would call steppe grasslands, um, are, tend to be highly degraded because of poor livestock management, you know, especially over the last few hundred years. But this is going back we domest- you know, since we domesticated livestock five plus thousand years ago. So there's been this gradual, incessant degradation of the world's grasslands through time. As a result, we've lost huge amounts of ecological integrity and biological diversity across these landscapes. And so the grasslands themselves are huge stores of of this biodiversity, huge stores of soil carbon. And again, they support 2 billion people. So a huge source of food as well. And not just food from livestock production, but also food from grain production. Because again, most of the grain produced in the world comes from what originally were grasslands. So they comprise a you know, extremely important component of our both biodiversity globally as well as our food production capacity. Okay. And I think in your book, one of the the best chapters that I, I think about all the time that I, you know, despite all my classes in college and all that stuff, I just it never sunk into my skull. Mm-hmm. But um, can you talk a little bit about just the the history of grass? Let's We'll just leave it uh, in the United States mm-hmm. and how the grass has evolved to be grazed and just kind of give us a quick natural history lesson on that. So, so most of these grasslands um, are in environments that, that we would call brittle tending uh, in holistic management. So this is a concept that actually Savory kind of pieced together in, in the brittle savanna tropical grasslands of Zimbabwe and Zambia in the 1960s. Um, so these are landscapes that because of the nature or the pattern of the precipitation, um, either it's very erratic, meaning it's highly unpredictable how it falls over the course of the year, or it's very seasonal and concentrated, which means that for a big part of the year, there is no rainfall, which means there's no humidity um, at the soil surface level for most of the time. As a result of that, there's very little biological activity out in the ambient environment. And because of that, very little biological decay of carbon takes place. So all this above ground biomass, it grows 
during the dormant season, I mean, sorry, during the growing season, when it quits raining, it, it goes dormant. It's, it's stand, it's kind of creates a standing haystack. Um, and, uh, if that material, if that carbon is not cycled, it's still standing there when it starts raining again the following year. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that above ground accumulation of biomass becomes gradually becomes a liability to that plant because grass plants grow back from their plant bases on the growth points around the plant base. So if you have this bulk of biomass shading the growth points at the base of the grass plant, it inhibits the vigor and the full expression of that grass plant. And some, a lot of grasses overrest to death. They die after multiple years of not having been defoliated. Um, so in these brittle environments, characterized by that seasonal nature of the precipitation or erratic nature of the precipitation, they evolved with these big carbon cycling herbivores. Um, so that's where there is moisture and heat all year long is in the gut of the grazing animal. And so those animals complete that step in this, in the circle of, in the kind of the life cycle of birth, growth, death, and decay. The herbivores create that decay step there via their digestive process. So it's an amazing, really evolutionary step. The fact that these animals evolve that have a rumen that can take in feedstuffs that are high in cellulose, it's undigestible to everything else. And because of the gut microflora in their rumens can break that down into volatile fatty acids that the animals then use for their own energy and sustenance. Um, and then they break the, the rest of that carbon back down into a form, dung and urine, that's more readily incorporated back into the topsoil. And so they effectively cycle this carbon during the dormant season. And so that essential step of decay cycling that carbon is performed by these herbivores so this is something that savory realized like wow the these animals are essential to these landscapes and when you remove them um, these landscapes instead of getting better they might get better for a few years if they've been in an overgrazed kind of hammered condition but eventually they start to revert and go backwards again due to too much rest mm -hmm. too much um, you know a lack of disturbance and grazing activity um, so the, the presence of those animals is, is critical, but the, the main thing is not just the presence of the animal, it's how the animal is behaving out there in the landscape. So that's something that Savory also pieced together in um, Zimbabwe and Zambia in the 50s and 60s as a game ranger. He was in very remote, um, very pristine parts of what's now Zambia, it was northern Rhodesia at the time. And um, they were areas that had never been settled by human pastoralists because of the presence of the tsetse fly, mm -hmm. which causes sickness in domestic livestock. Um, as a result, the huge assemblage of native herbivores in conjunction with their pack hunting predators were still out there um, in big numbers throughout these landscapes. And Alan eventually realized, wow, these landscapes that are um, still interacting or still functioning the way nature intended with big herds of herbivores plus all the packing predators at the end of the day are the most ecologically vigorous and resilient relative to um, all the areas that were settled by European ranchers where most of their lives or the wild animals were largely removed, replaced by lower numbers of sedentary livestock. Um, the vigor of the plants, the diversity of plants, the nature of the soil surface, um, all that tended to um, 
show a more degraded condition through time in the ranching setting relative to the wild setting, even though the effective stocking rate in form of actual total animal biomass out on that landscape was higher in the wild setting relative to the commercial ranching setting. So Alan gradually pieced together that it's the behavior of these animals that's critical. And the behavior is primarily stimulated by the presence of the herb of the predator, pack hunting predators, which tend to keep animals bunched as a defense mechanism against that predation. And because they're bunched, they tend to be to dung and urinate in fairly concentrated fashion. No animal likes to feed on areas where it's dunged and urinated. So animals are constantly fouling ground. And because of that, that stimulates them to constantly move on the fresh ground. And in a natural context, that what tends to happen is that after that fouling and grazing and disturbance, the animals tend not to come back to those spots until those plants have had the chance to fully recover. In other words, grow back from that disturbance and grazing event. And um, so in the United States, in North America, a similar dynamic existed um, you know, since the end of the Pleistocene a couple million years ago. Um, sorry, 10,000 years ago, two million to about 10,000 years ago. Um, I'll talk about that in a second, but just since 10,000 years ago, um, when the first Europeans got to North America, you know, we all know they encountered these massive herds of bison across the West, across the, uh, the Great Plains especially, um, but also enormous herds of elk and mule deer and bighorn sheep and pronghorn in the, in the Western states. And, um, and uh, if you go back and can, there, there's some trappers diaries from the early 1800s that describe these populations of animals even on in the western kind of intermountain and great basin areas that are kind of hard to believe the number of bighorn sheep and pronghorn and mule deer that they describe migrating across these landscapes and we all know the accounts of the early explorers throughout the northern throughout the great plains and the bison numbers of bison that they saw but it was the same thing all these animals were kept bunched and moving due to wolves due to predation pressure um, in the arid west a lot of the migrations of these animals were driven by getting to predator, um, uh, the, the least dense predator areas to have to calve and lamb, have their babies over a source concise period where there weren't too many wolves, and, and then they'd take off in their migration again. So there were all these amazing dynamics that kept animals moving, kept them concentrated, but kept them moving, which is not the same as we tend to practice in our commercial ranching settings when the cattle tend to be set stock for extended grazing periods in the same areas. What happens then is the grass plants get grazed. It's the same grass plants tend to get grazed over and over again. So a grass plants get great, might get grazed severely, meaning fairly tight to the ground. That's not a problem as long as that grass plant has a chance to then fully recover its area, its leaf area and root mass um, before it gets grazed again. But what tends to happen since the animals aren't moving is that grass plant starts to grow back and the animal will immediately come back and graze that new fresh regrowth because that's where the most digestible protein and energy is. Mm -hmm. um, so if that grassland gets continuously grazed like that, eventually it depletes its carbohydrate reserves in its root system, and either it changes its growth form, so that it grows prostrate along the ground, or it just becomes stunted and uh, tight to the ground, or it dies, depending on the species. So we tend to get landscapes that are dominated by plants that are resistant to this continuous overgrazing where that exists. Um, but typically we have that in conjunction with overrest right in the same pasture because a plant that doesn't get grazed tends to develop this above ground biomass, which becomes uh, low in 
um, digestibility and it's repulsive to the animal. So obviously the animal isn't going to come and graze the salad that's been sitting there for three years relative to the fresh leafy green that just starting to grow back. So you get the same, you get these two negative grazing patterns, overgrazing and overrest in the same pasture. But if you have big herds of animals that are grazing fairly evenly across the landscape in a short, intense bout of grazing and then moving on and potentially not coming back for years, two years, sometimes we manage grazing periods in our in our lower production kind of semi-arid environments, um, you can have you can eliminate those negative grazing p- patterns and get all the benefits of that natural pulse of disturbance and grazing combined with the recovery period that imitates nature. Mm-hmm. We could. That's why you wrote, wrote a five hundred page book on it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, that's the basic idea, though. Yeah, that's the, that's the basic idea, and it, I mean, and it makes perfect sense when you think about it. And one of yeah. the things we were talking about last week is that for for some reason and maybe it's because of you know the overgrazing or the fact you, you mentioned that if a property has been overgrazed or a piece of land has been overgrazed and you take the cows off it grows back and then but then a few years later it's going to be worse off because of it mm-hmm. um, but in general you know when I talk with people uh, either you know in the conservation world or in the environmental world they one of the general kind of overview ideas is that cows are bad for property Mm -hmm. or grazing is bad for property and that if i bet if you ask the average environmentalist or conservationist you said you know how do you think we could make this ranch um you know more ecologically diverse they would say take cows off of it Mm -hmm. take every animal off and let it be wild um and i think and so what you're saying is that we need these cows on there to because the grasses have evolved to be grazed and i think in your book one of the best illustrations of it is that you have a photo in there of a fence line and there's private land on one side that's been grazed and then there's i think i believe it's a national park on the other side where they don't allow grazing can you explain can you explain that photo and the the background on that um yeah so i think that might be in canyonlands national park so Can- canyonlands is it's uh it's up on what they call the island in the sky between the colorado river and the green river where they merge in canyonlands and um as you come onto that part of the park you come across this plateau up there the island in the sky and you grow and you go through what is somebody's grazing winter grazing allotment and then you go in, and then you cross into the into the park and you get into the park and it, and it looks like there's a lot of grass out there. But when you get out, and, and there is, but when you get out and walk out into it, you realize that it's mostly dead Indian rice grass. And, um, and yeah, maybe 10 or 20% of the plants are still kind of hanging on. But if you look down into that biomat, into that sward of grass, they're mostly overrested gray material standing there. And you can just pull those plants out of the ground. Um, and there's very little diversity there. You go onto the side of the of the of the fence that is still somebody's grazing allotment even though it's not necessarily a well-managed grazing allotment it's getting grazed periodically um mostly in the winter i think in that area um so and every plant is alive there's there's greater species diversity and none of the plants are dead um they're maybe not as vigorous as they could be because probably the timing and the intensity of grazing isn't, isn't managed like it could be but the presence of livestock there periodically is keeping that landscape alive Whereas in the natural and the national park side, it's an overrested, decadent mess, and there's a lot of um, uh, you know cryptogramic crust growing out in that national park side, which conservationists, environmentalists, 
um, are really hot on, and definitely there's a value associated with the cryptogram of crest. But you get cryptogram of crest dominating a landscape, there's, it's, from our perspective, it's nature's way to cover that soil surface in the absence, in the total absence of disturbance. So if you're a, if you're a mule deer or a chipmunk or a deer mouse or a cow or a bighorn sheep, it's pretty hard to make a living on cryptogramic crust. Um, and so um, it is good in an area that's impossible to, to disturb. It's nature's way of covering the soil. Um, but where you get this periodic pulses of disturbance, the cryptogram of crust doesn't form, but you get grass and other plants covering the soil instead, which again, from the point of view of any type of herbivore, from a deer mouse to an elephant, grass is better than cryptogram of crust. So, so you know, the, the environmental perspective, for the most part, the conservationist perspective is that, yeah, like you said, you gotta take the animals away, let it rest, let it recover. And if it's been an abused, kind of hammered landscape under high stocking rate, continuously grazed, yeah, you get this flush of regrowth and recovery that happens post removal of the livestock. But depending on the nature of the environment, um, through time, that is a negative influence on that land, that total lack of disturbance because of the stuff I've already talked about, this accumulation of above ground biomass, the lack of disturbance of the soil surface, which plants seeds, um, punches, prostrate decaying plant litter into the soil where it can decay quicker um, uh, and create micro microsites for germination. All these great things happen if the disturbance happens in the right way. So it's not, it's not the presence of the cow that's the problem. It's how the cow or the sheep or any of these domestic animals are interacting with the landscape. And so they're a tool, just like any tool can be used to tear something down or build something up. And so if it's a tool that's managed in the, in the appropriate way, um, there's wonderful things that can result from it. And when I say appropriate way, again, it's this, in this way of mimicking nature, mimicking this natural movement that would have been happening out there in a natural context. Um, so, you know, there's also this whole thing about, you know, what you're looking at at the soil surface level and kind of in intimate detail at the soil surface level. Um, you know, very few people are really trained in what to look for. And this is another thing that Savory has made us conscious of is thinking about the soil surface level from the, the soil surface from the perspective of effectiveness of ecosystem processes. So we're talking about the water cycle and which is how well the water is soaking into the, into the soil as opposed to running off or evaporating. Um, a bare soil surface um, with a hard cap on it, which is very typical of undisturbed landscapes, is uh, very prone to surface runoff. And what doesn't run off tends to evaporate right off that bare soil surface. Whereas a disturbed landscape that has healthy grass cover, that has decaying prostrate plant litter in between the plant bases, it's like having your skin over your muscle tissue. If you peeled your skin away, your muscle tissue immediately starts to dehydrate. But if you have skin on your muscle, your muscle stays hydrated. Same way with the soil, with the soil, with the, um, soil profile in a grassland. Um, if it's covered with plants, living plants and decaying plant litter, when it rains on that surface, that litter impedes surface runoff. And what does soak down into the soil surface then um, that litter impedes evaporative loss out of the mm -hmm. topsoil. So thinking about just looking at the soil surface 
And most conservationists will just look at species. What species are there? Are the right species here? They don't think about the the structure of that of that of those different species. Are they are they happy? Are they vigorous and full of um, healthy, vigorous leaves? Lots of live canopy cover, or is it a decadent, overrested plant sitting there um, dying? Um, it could be the same species, but what's the structure of that species? Another ecosystem process is the mineral cycle. How is that um, biomass cycling um, from uh, not just the biomass, but also the minerals in the soil? In the, in the soil. And there's specific things you can look at to try to determine if the mineral cycle is happening in an efficient and effective way or not. And typically in these types of environments, if there's not big herbivores present to fill this important um, step of decay that we've talking about and disturbance, you tend to have a stuck mineral cycle because that decay component isn't happening effectively. Mm-hmm. It's also community dynamics, which is, which is used to, we used to call succession, which is just the diversity of life out there. In a periodically disturbed environment, you get, to, you get all this wonderful um, microsites for germination that, that, that make possible the germination of all kinds of seeds that otherwise lay there dormant. And so, for example, in our ranches that we manage in South Dakota and Montana, all across all of our biological monitoring transects that we have out there, which measure the effectiveness of these ecosystem processes I'm talking about, our, our species diversity has increased by 72% across our transects. So oh, wow. we go out and we, we count how many species are showing up in these loops that we put down across the 200-foot transects. And, and, um, and so our species in just six years has, That's what I was gonna ask has increased by 72%. Wow. And our plant base will cover, so the amount of area covered by actual living plant base, which means that the, the higher the plant base area, the more dense the plants has increased by 34%. So we're getting more plants of greater diversity as a result of impacting the landscape this way. And so looking at those kind of subtle changes at the soil surface, um, once you have your kind of eye trained to to know what to look for, um, all these things start to make sense. But most conservationists aren't trained in the health of the ecosystem processes or the effectiveness of the ecosystem processes. They're just trained in species mm-hmm. and species diversity. So they're trained wonderfully in that sense. It's great to go out with somebody, a botanist that really knows the species on a landscape. They yeah. teach me all kinds of stuff, but it's, they, they're not looking at the landscape from the perspective of management and functionality of rainfall, mm-hmm. functionality of mineral, mineral cycling, um, how the energy is flowing through plants, how much energy, soil energy you're actually capturing across that landscape, all that stuff are subtleties that we look for when we think about land management. So when you buy a ranch or when you take over managing a ranch and, you know, even very experienced ranchers, the ones that I've, you know, I've run into plenty who just throw the cows out in the pasture and leave them, you know, Mm -hmm. come back a few months later. Um, Can you give us just kind of an overview of, of what you guys do. You know, how do you make the, the animals uh, graze mm-hmm. as they naturally would, would have, you know, millions mm-hmm. of years ago? Right. So, we, you know, we don't repopulate the ranches with wolves and expect it all just to, <laughs> you know, just to, you know, self-organize yeah. and work like nature intended. Unfortunately, all these landscapes are now highly fragmented. It's really not feasible to reintroduce predators across most of these landscapes because they're too fragmented. There's too many roads, too many people, too many livestock. It just doesn't work. But we still have to have the herbivore there interacting with the landscape. So the human 
with its associated tools has to come in and stimulate and try to mimic that movement that the predators would have originally done. So we do, um, we do a lot of portable electric fencing. We build almost no new fence, especially in the kind of the, these Western landscapes because it's just cost prohibitive to build, to build new barbed wire fence. It just doesn't make any sense. Even to build new electric fence doesn't make any sense. But you can do these, there's really cheap, incredibly effective electric fencing technology that enables you to build basically any size pasture at any time, anywhere on the ranch. And so we have this, this grazing planning process that Savory developed by working with hundreds of ranchers throughout Africa and South America in the 60s and 70s, and, and then continued with the evolution of that work in the 80s when he immigrated to the, to the U.S. And, um, and so this is a step-by-step planning process that entails all kinds of factors. Sabri actually developed it from a military planning exercise, which is, you know, going into a very complex, potentially chaotic situation. Um, you would never go into a, a, a military battle without a really good plan, but you always know that your plan isn't going to actually work out as planned because the battle never evolves the way you exactly yeah. predict it. So you, you have to have the plan, though. That doesn't mean you don't plan. You also you still have this wonderful plan. I heard plan. a quote the other day. I think it was Mike Tyson or somebody said, everybody's uh-huh. got a plan until you get punched in the face. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But, but even those boxers, I mean, they've, they've planned and prepared for when they get punched in the face on how, in the face on how to, how to um, control and monitor and, and yeah. potentially replan if they have to yes. during the course of the fight. Uh-huh. And there's huge preparation that goes into getting ready for that fight. Well, the same thing is getting ready for a grazing season or for a military battle. So the planning process that we have takes into account um, the livestock needs, obviously. Livestock physiological needs vary throughout the year, whether the cow is a dry cow in the winter, not lactating, or when it's approaching... Um, the last three months of gestation relative to when habits has its calf first three months of gestation or, or of lactation or higher demand when she's trying to build back body condition and um, build back her um, her ability to reconceive again and get bred again three months after she's had the calf so there's all these physiological factors that go into the plan um, that dictate or not dictate but that's that um, influence where we have the animals during these phys- different physiological states of the year for example there's also the needs of the plants and the recovery periods that plants need um, between grazing events before we come back so recovery period goes into the plan um, recovery periods are different depending on the elevation and the slope and the aspect and whether it's irrigated or not so all those different recovery period needs go into the plan all different kinds of potentially specific needs of specific pastures there might or, or things to look out for in specific pastures. Like in our high altitude country in Colorado, we have a lot of larkspur problems in June. Mm-hmm. So in certain pastures. So you, you know all that stuff on the plan, where to avoid during this time. If we're really trying to stimulate elk populations because a big part of our income is by guiding elk hunts in the fall and we want to stimulate elk on our ranch, we try to not to influence the elk when in there in the in the midst of calving for example we have big areas on the ranch we used to lease that tend to be dominated in june by calving elk mamas so we just work that into the grazing plan and avoid those areas during that time of the year so there's all these considerations that go into the plan how long would it take you to understand a piece of property i know you're you're learning more every day you're out there but in general when you walk onto a ranch how long does it take you to say all right i I can start making my plan now well you can you can you know, you can come up with a plan from day one um, with the best knowledge that you have. And that, that's a big, um, uh, you know, 
the the knowledge that the that the previous owners and managers mm-hmm. have of the landscape, it's definitely highly valuable. Sure. When I go in and do a consulting job with the ranch, with the new ranch, the guys that are sitting there at the table that have been at the ranch for years or potentially decades, um, their sp- place specific knowledge is absolutely essential to coming up with the best plan. When we go on with grasslands to a new property, usually the previous owner isn't sitting there at the table with us as we do the plan. We try to glean as much as we can from him before the transition takes place. But but you can make you make a plan from day one. But as the years go on, your plans get progressively way more refined and much yeah, you better. Get more data every year. You get more data, yeah. and you just learn what works. You know, there's a lot of logistical considerations that go into manage into implementing a grazing plan. It's not that easy, especially in in kind of tough mountain country, the logistics of getting a big herd of animals from one pasture to another is frequently challenging. And so, mm-hmm. well, um, you take you all learn. that all that complex, yeah, the, you know, all the complex uh, ecology and the logistics, and then you put HR on top of that. You got to find people that, that will totally, you know, good workers to help you. Exactly. And so, it, yeah, it's just unbelievably complex. Yeah, and that's that's a whole another can of worms there because ranchers and cowboys tend to be very proud of. Mm-hmm. Of uh, you know of their lifestyle and their knowledge base, and you know, understandably, there is a lot of wonderful knowledge there. But there also tends to be resistance. Anything that might question whether or not the way that that a person has been doing something his whole life might have some flaws in it. And so, just the the human component of this, it's really tough. And so we we try to attract guys onto our teams that are open-minded and that are kind of already in our holistic management network that have an appreciation of these this stuff now we're getting into second generation holistic management guys my main partner in grasslands is a guy named zachary jones from montana and his dad was on the first holistic management board that savory set up in the early 80s in in north america and so zach's a second generation holistic guy Mm -hmm. so this just all is the way he grew up and it's not you don't have to reteach him anything um, but that's not the case in most places. So, um, so yeah, it's tough. You, you need to you need to be just need to be a truly just functional human being, realizing that you can still have a lot to learn, and 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 uh, and uh, just have an open mind. And um, you know, and we also are quite humble when we start going into this as well into a plan. One thing that we that's a critical to making all this work is to assume that our plan is wrong because mm-hmm. it's guaranteed to be wrong. And, uh, and to not just because you put all this effort into devising the plan to begin with, um, doesn't mean that you then stick to the plan rigidly. Mm-hmm. Um, cause it's guaranteed to fail if you do. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have to have the humility to assume you're wrong and then be out there monitoring for the first warning signs that you probably, you, that you've misplanned something mm-hmm. and then have the discipline to correct and control. And if needed, scrap your plan and start over that's the hardest part yeah. is the implementation side you can get guys to sit down around a table and do the plan but then adjusting the plan as needed through time it's really hard yeah. and also seeing how it takes a lot of kind of abstract thinking because you're you're thinking multiple months down the line throughout this planning window and trying to evaluate how does the decision that i make today impact the execution of this whole plan and um and that's that's hard for a lot of guys to do. And you don't not everybody has to do that, but there's a few people out there that are really good at, at this spatial, temporal, abstract thinking component yeah. that goes into this. And um, and uh, so we need those kinds of skill sets out here across these landscapes, and, and those are rare. Those yeah, are rare I think skills. it's rare in, in any business. You it know, is. to find somebody yeah. you think about just 
you know, investment bankers, you know, if people, you know, they're, they're doing the same thing and they're looking out and trying to figure out all these different, you know, trying to figure out what the economy is going to be, what the, are there many wars, this and that. And I don't know, it's, it's complex. Um, so we, we've been talking a lot about the ecological side of things, but I think it's worth noting what you said at the beginning that at the end, at the end of the day, your, this approach makes ranches more productive, which equals more money for ranchers. Mm-hmm. And so to me, it seems like, it's kind of a no-brainer because you've got it's better for the environment, it's better for the bank account. So, what is the main reason that? What's the main objection you get when you go to a rancher? You know, obviously there's that inertia. They they've been doing things the way they do it. Mm-hmm. Is it because it's just a ton more work? Well, or is new or, or there's there's it's not it's not necessarily more work. I mean, it might sound like more work, all the stuff I've been talking about here, but it's it's way more. It's actually less work in many ways because we end up aggregating our livestock into way fewer herds, which means that you only have so many places you have to go across a big ranch every day to check on things, as opposed to having to check water everywhere. Yep. Which is where my wife and I were newlyweds in New Mexico. We had all our cows in one herd. We only had to go to one water point every day to make sure that was good. Usually, we're just a matter of opening and shutting gates mm-hmm. at a water point into a new pasture to move our cattle. Mm-hmm. Um, and and our neighbors thought that was just a, we had a big old workshop going on up there. Yeah, kind of workshop up there, isn't it? They tell us. <laughs> and uh, I said, well, I don't know. I only worked two hours today <laughs> <I'm done. laughs> and uh but they when they're driving around all day long checking water because they got 50 100 cows scattered out across, across 30 water points 30 windmills you know so they got to check every windmill every day to make sure it's working mm-hmm. um so in many ways it's not as much work but what it, it's it's way harder mentally though and it takes most people just don't like to sit down and think um and and so it takes it takes a certain level of kind of intellectual curiosity and and discipline as i was just talking about to observe closely and make the necessary adjustments because if because if you do have your herd in a great big i mean your cattle in a great big herd and you have fairly small pastures and your grazing periods are two to five days um, before they have to move on and you and you and you um, say okay i have five days planned in that pasture so i'm going to stick there for five days if you don't go out there and actually monitor that that's was a, a properly calculated grazing period and if you don't realize that actually cattle needed to move on day three and a half or four and you keep them in there five days the impact on that is hugely stressful to the livestock and it's stressful to the land too so you have to make you have to get out there and observe and make the adjustments and then if you move them a day and a half quicker than you plan you say okay if that continues to happen if i keep if i realize through the course of my grazing plan implementation that i'm overstocked because i'm having to move a day or two quicker in each pasture what is the implication of that the entire getting to the end of the season sure and so what does that mean in terms of decisions i have to make today it's like dominoes it starts the totally yeah so so that's the hard part about it it's just the the observational part of it and most people just get entrenched in habits, and we all do this in every aspect of our lives. And habits can be a really good thing if they're constructive ha- habits that build rather than just kind of keep you in a status quo or in a gradually degrading situation. Most ranches have gradually degraded a little bit year after year after year to the point that ecology suffers and to the point that it just becomes a non-viable business and people either have to sell their ranch, kids don't come back, 
Um, people have to go get part-time jobs in town to subsidize the ranch. None of it works anymore. Um, and so, yeah, getting to the eco 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 uh, economic result is that because we're doing a good job with the ecology and we're managing our plants the right way and making the plants more productive, and because of the way we're managing the cattle in bigger herds, that, that changes the way they interact with the landscape and they get to all corners of the ranch. And in most ranches, you have beat out areas around water points, and then you have the stuff that's over a mile away from the water, overrested. And so by managing the cattle the way we do, the cattle, um, we in tighter bunches and in bigger herds, the cattle will readily go two to three miles from water. So all of a sudden, you've doubled the size of your ranch just because you're utilizing the whole thing. Sure. And, and, and you can therefore run a lot more cattle. Mm -hmm. And that's on, with the same overheads, with the same people, the same number of pickups and horses and stock trailers and four-wheelers. So you have the same overhead, but twice the production. All of a sudden, your ranch becomes highly profitable. Mm -hmm. On our grasslands managed ranches in Montana and South Dakota, our average uh, through over the last six years, our profit margins have been about 40%. So of every $100 of gross income that we make, about $40 falls at the bottom line. Um, Did you have numbers on what they were before you took over? Um, Estimates? No. So, well, in some cases we do when we go in. You know, usually if it's a big ranch that's scaled up well, usually they're marginally profitable, to break even to marginally profitable. Mm -hmm. But they definitely don't have 40% operating profit <laughs> margins. Yeah. And so the only reason that's possible is because we can drastically increase stocking rate. Um, but again, it takes a lot of effort and observation and skilled management to pull that off without having animal performance wrecks or ecological wrecks. And then I would imagine um, when it comes, you know, you, you're on the ranch for 10 years or so, if you wanted to sell it, you could sell it at a huge premium to what you bought it because it's just a better property all the way around. It's healthier. Mm -hmm. You've got the, the data to show that you, it can run this many cows. Mm -hmm. uh, I would imagine so you're getting that appreciation on top of, every, of the underlying asset. Yeah, that's, you know, that's definitely a driver in, uh, in our business model because um, there obviously is a real estate component too. Even yep. though our guys don't have any explicit um, selling window, you know, we don't wrap these around a 10-year horizon and say we're going to liquidate in 10 years. But if we do want to sell a ranch, yeah, that has value. It especially does in environments like we manage a bunch of country in New Zealand and the property values are totally tied to how many sheep stock unit equivalents the property can carry. Mm. So if you've shown that you've got, you know, five to 10 years of data carrying a certain stocking rate that's 50 to 100% oh, higher than the previous guy, you can sell that land, you can sell that based really on your kind of running average uh -huh. stocking rate. And so, yeah, that's huge upside implications, you know, let alone just, you know, like, the dollars per stocking rate tends to go up through time also. But if you've also increased the numbers of stock units, um, sorry, the dollars per stock unit tends to go up just like dollars per acre tends to go up in the United States over time. But if you're running more stock units times a higher dollars per stock unit, yeah, it's huge. It's huge real estate appreciation. And so we, it's not as obvious in the U.S. because um, you go onto a ranch that's, that's uh, you know, there's some tie to stocking rate in terms of dollars invested per land area that it takes to run a cow unit for the year. Um, and if you're showing that you can run more cow units, um, yeah, that translates into more, into a higher price. But there's, it's, it's uh, as you've been in the real estate business, it's kind of hard to go in and, and say, yeah, we've carried twice as many cattle over the last 10 years. Um, 
therefore the ranch is worth twice as much per yeah. acre. Yeah. Um, it doesn't necessarily translate, but, but still though. It, and it, but you know, if you're managing for, for wildlife and you have a, you know, a lot of elk are, are coming down on the property True. and used not to be coming there, that yeah, that's is worth, big, that's worth a lot. Big value. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I can't believe you, Jim laughed at my list of questions because I have so many and we've gotten through about three, I think. <laughs> um, so uh, one of the reasons I do this, these interviews is because I meet all these people that are doing very interesting work, but they're also very interesting themselves. They've got really cool backstories. And so how did you get into this? Where are you from? Where'd you grow up? How did you end up where you are now? Well, I, I kind of have an unconventional path to this life. Um, my, my family moved in, my dad's side of the family moved to Western Colorado in the 1890s and became ranchers. Back from in where? The, from England, straight from the oh, lush wow. pastures of Southern England. They moved, to, they moved to Western Montrose County. and Straight from England. Straight from England. <laughs> and back in the open range days, it's still Western Montrose County, still one of the most remote parts of yeah. the continental United States. I can't imagine how it must have been 1892. <laughs> and uh, anyways, they... They they ranched out. They summered out on a on a on the western edge of the San Juan Mountains, up on Lone Cone and Little Cone. Yep. And then they and then they wintered out in the in the big kind of desert country towards Utah. And um, and they did that again back in the open range days. And when the Homestead Act started kicking in in that part of Colorado in the teens, um, the Homestead Act allowed people to come in and homestead square mile sections. And um, so all the best water started getting taken up and it just started to become a fragmented landscape. And my ancestors determined that it no longer worked out there. So they, they moved over to Montrose and started ranching in the Uncompahgre Valley, farming in the Uncompahgre Valley. My granddad ended up buying some summer country between Montrose and Gunnison. Um, so, but my dad was an only child and, and my granddad was kind of a slave driver. So my dad got worked really hard from the time he was about seven until he got out of high school. And he didn't want anything to do with the ranch or the farm. Um, and he ended up coming to CU, got a football scholarship to play tackle at CU. Yeah. And, and um, so he did that and then got a teaching credential and, and wanted to be a teacher and a coach. And he got a job teaching school in California in 1960. So he moved out there and met my mom, who's from Anaheim, California. Okay. And um, she was a teacher also. But at, once my dad had been away from the ranch for a few years, and by the time my brothers and I came along, he realized his family had a pretty special thing up in western Colorado. So he insisted that we, my whole family, get back to Colorado most of the summer, which we could do because they were teachers and they had their summers off, and go work for my granddad. But my granddad was a totally different man with myself and my brothers than he was with my dad. And uh, he kind of romanced me into the into it. Didn't work me nearly as hard as he worked my dad and let me go fishing and shoot my BB gun <laughs> as a little kid. It's supposed to just irrigating all day <laughs> and raking hay all day. So, so I grew up just enamored with the mountains of Colorado and um, um, detested the fall when I had to go back to California and go back to school. So it was kind of a good, I hated it growing up, but it showed me two different worlds and it made me realize really what I valued and where yeah, I wanted to be. you could choose. I yeah. could choose. Unlike my dad, who didn't know anything other than ranching in the mountains yeah. of Colorado. And um, <clears throat> so, so that's the path I wanted to be on, but I didn't think I could make a living as a rancher. So I thought I needed to be a veterinarian, livestock veterinarian, and I would be a rancher as a hobby on the side. But about halfway through college, I realized, gosh, I really don't want to be a veterinarian. And I really want to raise healthy animals, but I don't know how to do that and make a living. 
simultaneous to that, I started getting more conscious of of our land, of our land, and the plants that grew that were grown on our land, and the fact that wow, we probably degraded our land significantly because all the willows were gone mm-hmm. through our creeks. Our high alpine parks were dominated by Kentucky bluegrass and dandelions. Wow. So non-native plants that came in that were resistant to continuous grazing all summer like we had done forever. And um, I didn't know what to do about it, though, And until I came across Savory's work just by great good luck in the late 80s when I was in college in California and um, came across his book and realized, oh, my gosh, here's some answers. Which book was that? It was Savory's book, Holistic Management. Holistic Management. And... Um, and uh, I recognized the name Savory on the cover. I actually found it just serendipitously at a bookstore in Gunnison. Really? I was there to go watch the Cattlemen's Days Rodeo. And uh-huh. the parade happens in the morning. The rodeo's in the afternoon. So my dad and I were just killing time. And we went to the bookstore on Main Street uh-huh. there in Gunnison. And there's a book that says Holistic Management. And down below it said Alan Savory. And I recognized Savory because I'd read a little bit about this Savory grazing method yep. that he used to call it. Um, but I didn't recognize the word holistic at all. I know, no, no, <laughs> but I picked it up and I remember I was obsessed with getting rid of the sagebrush out in our parks and our high alpine parks in our place. I didn't know what to do about this freaking sagebrush. And, um, so I immediately go on the index for look up brush encroachment, brush removal. I find a few pages and I go back, I find the, I go, what's he say? How do I get rid of the brush? He says, typically most ranchers are obsessed with getting rid of their brush, but that's really the last thing they need to be worried about. <laughs> I was like, well, that's a different perspective. <laughs> Usually there's all kinds of other things to throw money at yeah. before you start removing your brush and yeah. worry about that. Someday that might be the thing to attack, but almost always it's not the place to start. I went, well, that's really an intriguing take on this. And so I flipped through it a little more and immediately realized I had, I had a book there that was going to change my life. But see, that's interesting because I bet a lot of people would look at that book and they'd read that exact passage and they'd say, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about and throw it in the trash. But because you're curious, you thought, know. wow, this is, this, let's see what else this guy is to say. I, don't, I, I think I was in a space of trying to find answers because uh-huh. I, I realized that I loved our land um, more than I loved cows or horses or the ranching culture, even though that was totally what I, that's all I wanted to be was a cowboy and a rancher. But I didn't want to be, I knew I couldn't be a cowboy and a rancher if it resulted in the degradation of the what underpins it all which is which is grass yep and um so so yeah i was searching for answers and so i just i think i was just in an open-minded spot there and i was you know again i was a i was in going on in my junior year in college and and i and i didn't grow up on the ranch most of the year i was in california in suburban anaheim california going to school and playing football and then i'd come back and get this dose of high country ranching but i didn't have any really entrenched habits as I probably would have had if I'd have lived there all year and really sure. gotten, you know, the whole annual cycle drilled into my head. This is how you have to do it. Yeah, since you were seven years old, probably like your like my dad yeah. had. Yeah. So I was just a kind of unique background that just led to my, um, you know, ability to kind of be open to different ways of looking at things. And so you've gone to ranches. You've gone to and worked at ranches all over the world, right? Mm-hmm. And so how how did that? How did you start doing that? Well, um, my, my granddad actually sold his, his farm that he had down close to Montrose just before I was born. And that's where they raised all their hay and all their um, potatoes and wheat that they grew. And but he kept all his summer country, mm-hmm. which is where I would go all summer as a kid. And um, 
so when Daniela and I, my wife Daniela and I, we, um, when we went to take over the lease of my family's summer country, it was just a summer grazing enterprise, basically from kind of, we'd start working on fixing fence in late April as soon as the snow went off. And then we'd finish with our hunters in mid-November, and then we didn't have anything to do from mid-November to mid-April. So we said, what can we do to make a living in the winter? And uh, so I should say, we used to custom graze other people's cattle for them in the winter or during the summertime as well. So in, when fall came around, we'd ship the cattle back to their owners, and we didn't have any cows to take care of for four or five months of the, of the year. And so... Um, so we said, my wife and I both are very keen travelers, and um, we had traveled a fair bit throughout Zimbabwe and Namibia and South Africa, visiting holistically managed ranches that Savory had put us in touch with. Um, so we said, why don't we create a, a ranch tourism business, taking people to go visit ranches in other parts of the world, primarily the Southern Hemisphere, where, where it's summertime during Colorado winter, yep. and let's just do that. So. So that's we created a business around that, and we eventually um, put together great groups of ranches that we visited in Argentina, and Australia, and Zimbabwe mainly, but also in South Africa and Namibia. We did a few tours as well. So, so that's how that came about. It was kind of because we had a seasonal ranch in Colorado, and we had to figure out something to do in the wintertime. So we came up with that idea. We didn't kind of want to get out of ranching, and we wanted to still stay yeah. connected to that. And actually, it ended up being really a wonderful education for us. You know, it was a way to keep our heads above water financially in the winter. Um, but it also was a wonderful education because every one of those ranch tours, it was kind of like a mini master's degree. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask is, it, yeah. I'm sure you've learned, you could write five books on it, but if there's, is there one particular lesson that sticks out in your head that you learned from one of these international trips that you you would have never picked up otherwise? Um, yeah, there's, there's probably a lot of things. I mean, one thing is that there's um, there's commonalities everywhere, and we're all human beings with grass and livestock struggling towards kind of similar ends. But the nuances associated with every place are so different. <clears throat> um, so I kind of I think that's one thing. Just the con that I just learned that we all have kind of this common struggle, but you got to stay flexible with the local specific context that you're managing and not try to not try to apply recipes anywhere um that's one thing that i you know kind of rubs me wrong people talk about best management practices which tend to be too recipe like um all the stuff i've been talking about in terms of recovery periods that plants need and, and the different stocked entities that are appropriate are totally different from a high rainfall tropical savanna that might get 50 60 inches of rain in zimbabwe relative to um, Monument Valley in eastern Utah, where I used to consult, that gets eight inches or seven or eight inches of rain. And I would imagine that there are even differences between one in South Park, Colorado, and you know one in North Park, Colorado. Totally. You know, every one of them is completely different. There's big differences within ranches themselves. You know, in places that we've managed, depending on elevation and and aspect, um, there's just every pasture takes a nuanced perspective, and so. Um, so that's, that just gets really, you become very conscious of that, though, as you travel around the world and, and see all these different things. It's all grass and cows and people, but all the details are different. So you just, and there's some basic principles that apply everywhere, but that need to be adapted for the local context. Got it. Um, 
man, I've got so many questions I want to <laughs> ask you. Uh, one thing that I definitely want to hit on that's a little outside of the ranching, but I think is unbelievably interesting, is your running. Because one thing I always keep to myself when I'm talking with ranchers is that I like to do ultra marathons because it instantly makes them <laughs> think that I'm crazy, which I probably, there probably is something wrong. Definitely. Uh, <laughs> but I never tell anybody. And here you are. A rancher, a very accomplished rancher who also runs ultra marathons. So, how in the world did you get into this? As if your job's not physically demanding enough and you've got a family, when did you decide that it was a good idea to start running for 15 hours in the mountains? Yeah. Well, my, my job used to be physically demanding yeah. back when I was actually a rancher. Because <laughs> I, you know, I, we ranched, the, the country we ranched in was mostly on edge as my buddy Tony Momberg says uh, yeah. and you fight gravity all the time so you're stringing hot wires across canyons all the time and you stay in really good shape as a result you got of a good that. base fitness level yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I, I, I stayed fit as a result of just ranching um, for you know the 20 years that I'd ranched um, but since we started Grasslands you know I spend way more time riding my computer and riding airplanes than I do riding a horse or a four-wheeler or stringing hot wires across canyons now so I moved to Boulder to be close to Denver International Airport and um and quit working hard physically and Boulder has ridiculous dining and and I just gained 20 pounds within, <laughs> within a couple of years and I realized holy cow I'm gonna die when I'm 50 unless I change my habits here so I noticed looking outside the window of our apartment in South Boulder, looking across to the Boulder County open space, there were all these people running around out there, <laughs> running around on trails. And I thought, most people hike trails. How come they're running? Yeah. And uh, then I realized there was such thing as trail running. And a guy that works with my wife is from Boulder, happened to be this trail runner, ultra marathon guy. He said, yeah, you should, should start running if you want to lose some weight. I said, you know what? That sounds better than going to the gym and and, and yep. so I love being in the mountains. I love being outside. I'm just going to go out and start doing this. So one day I broke the inertia, walked across the street, did my first trail run. And that was four years ago. And I, I just, I tend to be somewhat of an extremist when I get into something. I just, I just, you know, you kind of gradually make these incremental improvements, get better and better. And you think, geez, these people are going out on the weekends and doing these ridiculous races. How the heck do they do that? Mm -hmm. So I just got into how do you got to, what do you got to do to prepare for these ultra marathons? And realized it was in the realm of possibility you know it's not it's not i mean it's hard but it's totally doable it is you just got to put the time in you know it's amazing what the human body can can do and so as i read about trail running and read born to run and learned about the fact that as humans we're like the ultimate evolved distance runner because we're because we're upright and and we so you, can dissipate heat. You, do you agree with his uh, analysis there? I mean, it makes sense to me. I'm, I'm just not an anthropologist or I, I don't, I mean. <laughs> yeah, I totally do. Yeah, I think seemed... it makes total sense. I mean, we have this nuchal ligament in our back of our head here that keeps our head stable. Uh -huh. um, chimpanzees don't even have that ligament. And, and uh, so we're bipedal, we're, which means we're upright walking. So yeah. we, we don't get direct, not that much of our body surface area is directly exposed to the sun mm -hmm. when you're upright. And we sweat like crazy. Yeah. And uh, so we can dissipate heat. And once you get that base aerobic level, you can just go and go, go and go. Day. Yeah, It's 
crazy. For days. For days. It's nuts. It what, is nuts. What we can actually do. And you, if you get, and it doesn't take that much to get to that level. So I realized, man, we're, you know, we're physiologically designed to do this. This is what our genetic inheritance is. After three and a half billion years of evolution, mm-hmm. the human homo sapiens has arrived at this level where we're the, we're the ultimate distance runner across you know, crazy landscapes on trails, not up and down pavement, yeah. but up and down mountains and across plains. So I said, that's my evolutionary heritage. I'm going to, I would be ashamed not you to have no tap choice. into my genetic <laughs> yeah, heritage. And so, and so that's just kind of got me into it. You know, I'm just kind of, I and like, you went straight, straight to the 50, right? That was my first one was a 50. Yep. And, um, I, I really should have only done 25, but I somehow pushed through that 50. I, that's the same thing I did. I've never met I've never met anybody who did that. Most people do marathons first, but I think mm-hmm. we might be share a uh, loose wire up yeah. top because I must be <laughs> straight to the fifty. Yeah. Um, and it's good though. So if you were giving advice to somebody who wanted to start running um, and wanted to start doing these ultras, what would it be? Because I'm with you. Everybody thinks it's insane, and if I can do it, anybody can do it. Because yeah. you know, running. When I played sports in high school, what I call real sports, it, mm-hmm. uh, running was punishment. Exactly. And I hated it. Yeah, I and, uh, and so I hated it, and I never thought I had any talent for it. Mm-hmm. And so if I can go out there and do it, I feel like anybody. So what would your advice be if somebody? Well, um, it's just to realize that it'll, it'll, it'll get comfortable after a while. Mm-hmm. Once you understand what that aerobic level of running is, it's not like running the mile or the two mile or you know the 800 where you associate that with kind of middle or long distance running where you're, you know, you're going hard for that distance. And by the time you finish the race, you're totally depleted. That's not what this is like. You're not out there running at, you know, at your VO2 max lactate threshold the whole time. You get into this groove and you can just go and go and go. And you don't, you don't run out of um, aerobic capacity. Your body just starts to ache and, you, you know, you kind of get into this extreme state of exhaustion um, that, you know, that's a big part of ultra running. So if you're not really into that side of it or like the idea of pushing through kind of your human limits from, in terms of pushing through exhaustion, then it's probably not for you, (laughs) but it's not, it's not like this negative thing tied to running. It's more, it's more this mental exercise of pushing through limits that you didn't know you really could push through. And, um, and you know, the running side of it can get comfortable after a while. And so don't try to go out and do something ridiculous to start with. If you haven't been running much, just like I started with three mile circles that I did probably 20 times at three mile before I expanded it a little bit more. And then you just little by little, just keep expanding your distance and expanding your elevation and just keep your heart rate there in that aerobic range um, so that you're not building up lactic acid in your muscles and and you can just, you can just go and go and go. And, And also, Realize that when we say ultra running, it's most of it isn't actually yeah. running. <laughs> All the uphills are basically hiking, walking. Um, yeah. It's impossible to run the uphills <laughs> yeah. unless you're a guy like Scott Jurek or Tony Krupishka that yeah. are you know genetic anomalies. Yeah. Um, or um, Killian Hornet. Oh yeah! Wow. <laughs> guy did the hard rock in 19 hours. <laughs> anyway, there's a few crazy people that can run up the hills, but most of us can't. So just realize that. Yeah, you actually get to walk a lot in the process of doing an ultra marathon, and you get to run all the downhills, and that's really fun to run downhill. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think uh, when I'm doing a race, I, I try to push it a little in training, just for the training sake. But in races, my goal is never get out of breath. Yeah, you know, just exactly. always, just never get to the point where you're breathing hard. And I think 
in my experience, nutrition is a, mm-hmm. is a key. Because I remember when I was training for my first one, I just kept getting whipped and whipped and whipped. And I kept experimenting with different nutrition. And I finally got what worked for me. And everybody's different. Yeah. And once I figured it out, I mean, really, you can go for you could go for two days straight. Yeah. If you've got that base fitness and you're eating and drinking and doing the electrolytes correctly, yeah, who knows exactly. how long you go. It's yeah, amazing. I mean, you still get you still get exhausted, you know, and aching, but but you can maybe maybe exhaustion. I mean you do. I mean after you're out there for fifteen plus hours, you're tired. Yeah. But but it's amazing how you can just keep going though. And like you say, you, a key component of it is yeah, it's not to exhaust you, it's not to get out of wind, but it's also to keep the energy flow going into your body, the energy plus the electrolytes and keeping your body um, fueled. Mm-hmm. If you stay fueled, it's, you can just keep going. It's crazy. I've also found, we could we could talk about this for three hours, but um, what I've recently started doing, I used to do a lot of gels just because I thought that's what you're supposed to do uh-huh. and they sell them everywhere. But right. I found that um, nut butters like almond butter or huh. that, that kind of stuff works even better because it's that fat. Yeah. And I'm never at a point where I'm breathing hard enough to you know, really need that just pure sugar like you mm-hmm. would in a triathlon or something like that. Right. And so that that kind of slow, I think of it as coal versus jet fuel. Mm-hmm. You know, you want that slow burning kind of fuel that allows you to go for hours and hours versus yeah. pure sugar. Right. Um, all right. Well, unfortunately, I can't kidnap you and make you, you stay here and talk to me all day. Um, so no, the way I've been finishing up these um, interviews is with some real quick questions. Mm-hmm. And you can answer them as, as long as you want. But um, I think there have been some great answers, and I've gotten turned on to some books and different things that I wouldn't have known about otherwise. So if you could recommend one book or two on your line of work, uh, I recommend your book, so you don't have to recommend it. Um, sure. But uh, I, I highly recommend it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> That, well, that one's definitely worth reading over and over and over. Um, so one book on your business and then one book that you just have gotten a lot out of, either personally, professionally, mm-hmm. whatever. Um, I, w- I would say um, uh, there's a book that Alan Nation wrote called uh, Knowledge Rich Ranching. Mm-hmm. And so it covers a lot of the stuff that I've talked about here. Alan Nation is the editor of The Stockman Grass Farmer, which is kind of the, the monthly periodical that all of us kind of alternative thinking ranchers get. Um, so knowledge rich ranching in, in my space there's another one well, I'm going to say two another one is um, called uh, No Risk Ranching by No Risk Ranching by Greg Judy which is uh, the subtitle is Custom Grazing on Leased Land so for it's, it's a good model for people that don't have a lot of capital that want to ranch you don't have to own cows and land to ranch you can run other people's cattle on other people's land and be a rancher this is what we did for years we leased my parents' place and leased our neighbor's place and ran other people's cattle. And um, it's great. And that's actually what we do in the Northern Great Plains also. We all custom graze all our cattle in Montana and South Dakota. Um, so there's ways to ranch without having without being a you know, multimillionaire. Um, and those books tell you how to do that. It's all about this knowledge stuff, which comes back to all this stuff tied to planned grazing and increased stocking rates. It's all covered in that book. Um, and I would say outside of my space, I've read a book recently that just absolutely fascinated me, which is um, it's called Natural Born Heroes by Christopher McDougall. I was actually just thinking about that book this morning, and I put it on my list to read. Yeah. I saw something That's awesome. about it. Is it, so is it really good? the guy that wrote yeah, Born yeah, to yeah. Run, you know. I've heard awesome. it's great. Yeah, it's it's really cool because it, 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 it's, it's about the Cretans on the island of Crete during World mm-hmm. War II and how 
they basically sabotaged a Nazi army there. Crete was like this major kind of resupply point and logistical point for the Nazi um, uh, army to uh-huh. supply their eastern front. And the Cretans totally screwed that up. Yeah. <laughs> and there were these little, little Cretan dudes that could haul butt over mountains that could do these ultra marathons we're talking about right. and picking weeds along the way and eating weeds to fuel themselves. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and, and, you know, and figured out you know, burning fat and it's all, you know, your own body fat. And, and it's, so it's all about this ultra running basically, but in the context of a war Oh, cool. and, and how these people develop that being shepherds, you know, this shepherding culture, shepherding goats mm-hmm. and sheep in these insanely rough mountains on Crete. So it's about, it's got this pastoralism component. It's got this ultra running component. It's got this fascinating military history component and this fascinating, it's got all kinds of Greek mythology in there too that kind of drive the Cretan mindset. And it's also got all this special forces stuff in there because the British special forces guys came in and worked with the, with the Cretan shepherds. It's like if you got my bookshelf and just condensed it in. (laughs) I know, exactly. It's got all this nutrition stuff in there, too. It's just fascinating how it ties all that together and just a a totally skillful story. I'll put it at the top of the list. Definitely. Um, I'm glad to hear that because I was really, I was just thinking about it this morning. Um, Cool. Any favorite documentaries? Um, Gosh, the one that just popped in my mind is Senna. (laughs) I haven't seen that. It's it's about... um, I can't remember his first name. He's a Brazilian race car driver. Oh, really? Yeah, and it's his story, and it's fascinating. Really? That, yeah, just just the focus on perfection and and just discipline and preparation and 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 toughness that that mm-hmm. guy. You don't really think about that in a race car driver, but this guy was incredible. It was recommended to me by the guy I work with, Zach, who I mentioned earlier. Okay. And one night I just clicked on Senna. That's and, interesting. Oh my god, it was an awesome okay documentary. So that's good. That's why I ask these questions. <laughs> uh, yeah, I got my list gets longer and longer. Um, let me see. Do you have a specific favorite location, either in the West or because of all your international travel in the world? Is there one place that if you had to say that's my favorite? I don't know the answer. I don't have my own answer. Um, yeah, I would say it's still the little the little creek that runs through our ranch in Colorado. Mm-hmm. Actually, we my family sold the ranch two years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, it was the right thing to do in aggregate for my family, my mom and dad, and my brothers. But we maintained a what's called a life estate up on that oh, yeah. on our cabin up there, which means we can continue to use it as long as one of my parents is alive. And um, so that cabin is right up above a little creek called the Little Blue, and that's where I spent. Most of my child, my summers with a fly rod down nice. on Little Blue, snagging brook trout, and that's still my favorite little valley and creek and spot in the world right there. Thankfully, we can still go back and that use that special. in the summer's time. That's my favorite spot. Yep. Um, and so, next to the last question is if you could make a request of the people listening to this, and it's a wide hmm. array of people, everybody from climbers to ranchers to basically people who have a connection to the land out west. Is there something you would ask them to learn more about to to research a cause you're particularly passionate about well i mean a cause that i'm passionate about is is kind of making the world aware that that herbivory which is the grazing of forages by big ruminant animals is it can be a good thing and to not villainize livestock because they're just a tool, and it's the humans that are responsible for those livestock 
that's the issue. And so, and we're not gonna we're not gonna heal the grasslands of the world without livestock. We can't remove humans and remove their livestock and expect it all to come right. It's, the humans are still gonna be out there. The cattle and the sheep and the camels and the horses and everything are still going to be out there and all it takes is a readjustment of how those same elements interact Mm -hmm. to go from a state of degradation to a state of increasing abundance and really that's a big driver of our work is realizing that yeah we've lost all this biodiversity and associated soil carbon from the soils that are associated with these grasslands it's a huge carbon sink that can go a long way to mitigating the climate change impacts that we're all confronted with over the, you know, our kids are in a world of hurt unless we can simultaneously figure out how to quit combusting fossil fuels at the rate that we're doing mm-hmm. and simultaneously sequester an enormous amount of the overload of carbon that's in the atmosphere now. So we think by, by managing these 5 billion hectares, 12 billion acres of the world's grasslands in a more responsible way and getting them back to a state of abundance as opposed to a state of degradation that they're in now, we can draft. We can. Some calculations indicate that we can. We can actually sequester the overload of carbon that's in the atmosphere right now. Back, if we can do this over these five billion hmm. hectares of grasslands, it's going to take a long time to do that. But and it's mostly about training human beings. But, but that's that's the message that that my wife's side of our business, called the Savory Institute, is working on every day, trying to make people conscious of the fact that. Humans can be a keystone species out there in these landscapes. We already are the keystone species, but for the most part, we're kind of an unconscious degrading keystone species. We can become a conscious um, building species as opposed to this degrading keystone species. So that's kind of a long answer, but that's, that's just it. You know, people just need to become conscious that it's, it's a bigger issue than just removing cows and preserving it. Um, that's I not, think that's not a, a practical solution. Perfect summary of your work and your book. I, mean, I think that's that's what people need to hear. Mm-hmm. Um, so if people want to find out more about you, more about grassland, savory, what's the best way to do that? Well, we, we have websites for both of us. Um, Grasslands-llc.com is ours. So we have a, an email, there, contact email there that you can get a hold of us with any questions that usually get sent to me, um, <laughs> just fine. And, uh, and then the Savory Institute has a way more professional website than the Grasslands yeah. does. And uh, they're much better at getting back to people also. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's my wife's side of it. Um, that's uh, savory.global is their website. Okay. And I'll have links to everything in the notes. Okay. All right, that was great. Again, I, I really appreciate it. And we'll have to have part two, three, four, and five to cover okay. the rest of my so questions. <laughs> Thanks a lot. All right, you bet. So there you go, Jim Howell. I told you he's an interesting guy. Between the ranching and the running and the world traveling, he's got lots of great stories to tell, and he's doing very important work. I can't recommend his book enough for the love of land. There are links to it on this webpage. Go check it out. Um, I recommend it to people all the time, and I highly recommend it to you. It's an easy book to read, and it's packed with great information. Again, thanks for listening to the podcast. If you have any questions, comments, feedback, don't hesitate to reach out. Let me know if you have ideas for other people that I should interview. I appreciate your time. Thanks for listening, and I will talk to you soon. Bye.